Last week, some of you will remember that I spoke about the need for us to uh, remember that the marriage relationship also is a relationship that's subordinate to our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I even mentioned, um, hi, I even mentioned uh, divorce. And of course, I got a lot of pushback on that. A number of you were concerned that I'd flaked out on you and that I'd become a liberal. Now, nobody actually accused me of that, but that was the underlying sentiment. So I want to just make a couple of comments about um, the issue of marriage and the authority of Jesus Christ. Um, We live in an evil day. And part of the ways that we know that it's evil, part of the way that we know that it's evil is the despising of the marriage relationship. The marriage bed is not holy today. And vows are not kept today. Uh, Many of us are the product of the failure to keep vows, our own, our parents, our grandparents. And um, it's very difficult to live in that world and to be a Christian without making an error in the opposite direction, since no one keeps vows today and there isn't purity and, and marriage is not sacred. Then we move over here to turning Christianity simply into family values. Do you understand what I'm saying? And this is true all through history, that you make an error in one direction, and then you repent of that error, and you move the whole way over to the other direction. And so today, it's a great danger for churches all over this country to simply give themselves to the sanctity of the home, to the relationship of children to their parents, to homeschooling, to Christian schooling, uh, to, you know... Anything that has to do with the home and anything that has to do with home is viewed as being sacred because it's the home and we're all about home, you know, family values. Now, there's a lot of truth to that. When people who are politicians talk about family values, I feel like I'm about to get my pocket picked. You know, remember the old Samuel Johnson thing, the louder he talked of his honor, the quicker I counted my spoons. It was back in the days they were made of silver and guests would actually steal your spoons. And so Talking of family values today is a way that, uh, you know, we can massage everybody to think that we're basically all right. You know, we're, we're moral people. But when it comes to the church, we have to recognize that at the center of the gospel is the radical authority of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ does not do obeisance, bow his knee to family values. Now, where can we see that? Well, we see that in one regard when Jesus has his mother and his brothers come to take him out of a house where they're pressed in so tight that there's no room to breathe. And so Jesus is told, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus says what? What does he say? Who, are my, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he says, who are his relatives? They are those who obey the will of his father. Now, come on. Mothers. Those of you that have mothers. And that includes all of us, right? It's a joke, okay? Do you sense that this is radical? Jesus himself, imagine how Rome would view that today if it weren't already in Scripture. You know? Who is my mother? And so when it comes to those relationships, you'll find that we're basically on board. You know, the enemies of a man will be the members of his own household. We know Jesus said that. And so we're thinking, well, yeah, my brother was my enemy when I was growing up. I can live with that. You know, 
But then when I begin to talk about the marriage relationship, that makes us very uptight. Why? Because the two shall become one. Well, let me read to you from the book of Luke, the 18th chapter. We have the disciples saying this to Jesus. They say through Peter, he's always a spokesman, right? They say through Peter, Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now it's very clear there, isn't it, that this also includes the marriage relationship. And so when we go to Matthew 10, which I cited last week, Matthew 10, beginning with verse 34, where we read Jesus saying this. He says, beginning with verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Listen, brothers and sisters, you understand very well what he's saying. He is saying that there's no human relationship, none, that takes precedence over our relationship with God. None. Even to the point of self-preservation, because he says we have to take up our cross. So this means that our own lives, let alone our marriage relationship, our mother-father, our brother-sister, our parent relationship, everything is subordinate to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And remember, I said last week, you know there are times where you have to choose between your family and God. Now, I didn't sufficiently nuance, which is a word I don't like because of what it usually means. But last week, I didn't sufficiently nuance what I was saying. In other words, I didn't hedge it around in a way that um, would make it safe, because, of course, that's what I'm supposed to do is make all truth safe. Right. I'm being sarcastic. Jesus wasn't safe. You'll see that in a second. So anyhow, how do I make this safe? Well, I tell you, number one, that God has put in his church elders. And we have a plurality of eldership. That means we don't just have one elder. There's not just one judge here. There's a whole group of them. They're called elders. And any time any issue of choosing between God and a family comes up for one of you, it is debated in the elders board. On and on and on it's debated. Sometimes for many years it's debated. You wouldn't believe how long we debate some of these things. And that should comfort you because really when it comes down to it, do you really want me making a decision about whether or not you should leave your wife? No. Right? But if I'm making the decision along with, okay, all of you that are on the elders board, stand up. Stand up. Come on, stand. Come on, David. You're on the elders board. You're just inactive. Lucas, why are you standing? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
He was counting. Okay, sit down. And actually, this is, David was in the back, and uh, you go through these decisions, you pray, you debate. Some people this month take this position, and others this. And the next week, these are all over here, and these are all over here. You'll say, you know, divorce is the right thing one month, and then the next month you'll say, no, divorce isn't the right thing. And so these decisions are very, very heavy. Now you say, well, when could divorce ever be a right thing? And I say, well, like, for instance, when there is porneia, doesn't Jesus say any man that leaves his wife and marries another except for Greek porneia commits adultery? That means Jesus puts an exception clause in the sacrosanct nature of the marriage relationship, right? Porneia. What is porneia? Well, it's adultery, right? No, no, it's not adultery. Pornea is sexual sin. So, for instance, if a husband looks at Internet pornography, should his wife divorce him? How many think she should? How many think she shouldn't? How many aren't sure? How many are happy you have an elders board? (laughs) You see, what about if there's incest in the home? What about if there's physical abuse in the home? Now, listen, this is why I say to you, there are times where we counsel wives or husbands to divorce their spouses. Do you understand? These aren't simple things, and they're handled often over many, many years. But there are times where a husband or a wife becomes a toxic substance in a home that destroys the souls of the children and of their husband or wife. All right. So I hope that I have made you feel more comfortable because that's what it's about. (laughs) About Jesus saying that nobody has given up wife. Think of the disciples. He said, come follow me. And what did they leave behind? Have you ever thought about that? You think their wives all followed them? Now, now you say, well, it wasn't divorce. And I say, yeah, it wasn't divorce. But you can bet those wives weren't all happy about it. Right? You think they were all godly wives who just said, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir. You're going to go with Jesus? Good. I'll be home alone by myself with my children. No. It was very difficult for the disciples. That's why you have records of some of them saying, let me first bury my father. My father, bury my father. What an honorable thing. And Jesus says, no man putting his hand to the plow looks back. Jesus is the Lord, the Lord of our lives. And no marriage relationship, no father, no mother, no brother, no sister, no pastor, no elder, no king, no president, no priest, no boss, no business, no boat, no partners, Nothing should be allowed to come between our following Jesus. Nothing. Obviously, no dissertation committee. And I mean, that's a real issue. I've been here 15 years now. Let me tell you, it's a real issue. If you find yourself trimming, trimming the coin of God's truth for the sake of getting your doctoral dissertation through, it's all over for you. You've established what you are, and it's just a question of the price now. 
So let's have the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's have the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. Because last week we looked at the two men who were born blind. Remember that? And they're out and all the people are leaving Jericho. We saw that Jericho, if you'll face me, Jerusalem here, and then Samaritans live above. So good Jews, when they're coming to the Passover celebration, would, if they're coming south to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem, they go around to the east and then approach from the east to the west to Jerusalem, about 15 miles from Jericho. There's tons of people there. It's huge celebration, okay? They're coming east from Jericho, 15 miles. As they leave, there's a huge gathering, and there's two nasty, uh, uh, and I say nasty because that's how everybody would have looked at them. Everybody would have looked at them as defective people. They didn't have the concept of differently abled than if you were sick, if you were defective, you weren't allowed in certain parts of the temple, sometimes in the temple at all. All right, and here these guys are sitting next to the crowd. The crowd is is following Jesus. Jesus is making his triumphal approach, and these guys are yelling out, "Son of David, you know, have mercy upon us!" And uh, Jesus sees them. The, first, the crowd tries to shut them up. Jesus sees them. Jesus heals them, but they had to persevere through the crowd. And last week we saw that right away we see the opposition of the godly to the approach of an individual to Jesus. You've got the blind men. They want to get to Jesus, and the crowd says, shut up. And the Bible tells us that all the more intensely they yelled out for him. And we saw that Calvin and Henry both say, remember, often it is the church that opposes your approach to God. Because the church is filled with civic religion and with hypocrisy. And so we have to be prepared to stand against the church. I didn't mention that earlier, but the church is actually more permanent than your marriage. And if you don't know that, read the Bible. And so they said, you have to prepare yourself to stand against the church. So they leave Jericho. They're coming. And as they get closer to Jerusalem, they they hit Bethany and they hit Bethage. Now, what happened in Bethany? Just, Just a couple miles out of Jerusalem, what happened in Bethany? Was that Brandon? Yeah, what were you saying? Lazarus, Lazarus. Everybody knows Lazarus? He's the guy that died, and Jesus raised him from the dead. So you've got two blind guys healed at 15 miles. You've got Lazarus raised from the dead at two to three miles. So as Jesus comes to Jerusalem, finally the curtains pull back, and everybody has revealed for them who this is, such that even the little children are crying out, Hosanna in the highest, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, They name him the Messiah. Even the little children. And the Bible tells us that crowds of people left Jerusalem to go out and welcome him. Now why? Well, the Bible tells us because they had heard what had happened with Lazarus. And John, that's what it tells us. So Lazarus is raised from the dead a couple miles out. Everybody knows about it. It's done in broad daylight. He comes out of the tomb, and he's been in there days. He's been in there so that he begins to stink. This is what Scripture tells us. All right? Now, if a man who had calmed the storms, who had released a demoniac that even chains couldn't hold, who went around naked, cutting himself with stones, 
who fed 5,000, fed 3,000, who at another point had cleansed the temple, all right, who was not a respecter of persons. Everybody know that he said directly what he believed was true and did not couch his statements to, to massage the egos of the leaders. You know, teacher, we know that you're sent from God because you never say what we want you to say. We, you say what you believe is true, right? He's, he's raised the dead. He's healed the blind. He's made the lame walk. All right? He's turned water into wine. And now he's coming to the city of David. And right before he comes, he heals two blind men in front of a crowd. And then he heals Lazarus in front of a crowd or he raises him from the dead. And so you feel the excitement growing as he comes. And you read about it in Matthew chapter 21 where it says this. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, down a little bit, please. The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, we're going to keep reading, but first let's stop and note here. Um, they're approaching Jerusalem. They've come to Bethage, a couple miles out at the Mount of Olives. And he sends two disciples into, and it would have been like you approach Mexico City or you know, some of these third world cities. You see these little clumps of houses here and, and there. Over in Africa, you see them. Uh, where you have what would be called little villages. There was a little village of Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. And he sent two disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now in verse 3, it says, If anyone says anything to you, she'll say, The Lord has need of them. On the way here, I made a mistake, and I turned on the radio. I shouldn't do that on the way to church. Because inevitably, I listen to some other church here in town. And you get frustrated with me that I ask you to be discerning about churches. Because what you want to do is settle into the notion that all religions really go to the same place, especially Christian religions. And it really doesn't matter where people go to church. It's a personal preference. So I listened to this Christian church this morning. And I'm, I, I'm not using the word Christian the way that denomination uses it that says they're not a denomination. In other words, I'm not using it. As a Well, I am using it as a proper noun, but it, it's very hard since the Campbellites to figure out how you talk about Christianity because they've clomped onto the word Christian as a denominational appellation, right? So I don't know how to talk about it, but this was a Christian church, but not a Christian church. I don't know how to do it. 
We should trademark the word Christian so it can't be used by a denomination, you know. <laughs> you know. So anyhow, there's this Christian church, but not a Christian church. In other words, it's not Sherwood Oaks or one of its denominational churches. And there's a woman preaching, right? And the woman is preaching about Jesus and who Jesus is and how Jesus helps her. And the whole sermon is a sermon about, I, I assume they would call it a sermon, although I don't know, it may have been a sharing. And it's, it's a sharing or a sermon about uh, how um, we are um, to allow ourselves to become more uh, integrated with who we really are rather than who we think we are. And to get in touch with why we decided to be incarnated. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's the Christian branch called unity or something. I don't know. So she's going on about this, and she keeps talking about Jesus. Now, who is Jesus? Everybody wants to quote, uh, you know, if they're not against me, they're with me. And in a day of broad inclusivity and pluralism, it feels so good to us to say, well, if they're not against us, they're with us. And I say, well, why? And you say, well, because they say Jesus is Lord. I say, are you sure? And you say, well, maybe not Lord, but Savior. (laughs) And that's your first clue. You know, he'll save us, but we don't have to obey him. Many, many Christians today who claim the name of Christ do that. Well, in this case, it wasn't really about Jesus as Savior or Lord. It was about Jesus being a moral example to us. And I keep warning you about this. You have to choose your theory of the atonement. I'm speaking very technically. You say, well, I don't need technical. I just need to love Jesus. I say, no. You may not have Jesus as the one who saves you if he is not your substitutionary atonement. Unless blood is at the center of your faith, you have no Christian faith. Do you you understand what I'm saying? And so if your theory of Jesus is that he's someone who came to show us what a man could be, what a woman could be in their higher evolved state, you don't know Jesus. It's not Jesus you're worshiping. Jesus did not go into Jerusalem to show everybody what a highly evolved man could be. Jesus went to die. And he set everything up as he approached Jerusalem to make sure he died. And if you think he just accidentally blundered into the temple and got out a whip, which was handily next to him, and began using it, and it wasn't part of his obedience to his father who said he was to die, and if you don't think it's his blood that saves you, you don't know Jesus. And this woman knew nothing of Jesus. She talked about Jesus all the time. She knew nothing of Jesus. It wasn't because she was a woman. It was because she doesn't know Jesus. So Jesus was someone that she held out as being a highly evolved creature who shows us what we can be and when we really get like integrated and evolved and progressive and liberal and educated. All those words that make us feel good. Now, that's not why Jesus came. Jesus wasn't integrated. He wasn't evolved. He wasn't educated. And he wasn't progressive. And he wasn't liberal. If by that you mean to displace his substitutionary atonement. Because let me tell you, there's not one person on the face of this earth who has ever taken up his cross and followed him. Yes, we've tried, but we've all been miserable failures. 
the best of us, Mother Monica and Augustine, the best of us, have failed. And it's not about modeling ourselves after Jesus and getting fully integrated. It's laughable. Have you met any fully integrated people this week? Really? I mean, think of the most integrated person you met this week. Did you like them? How about your husband? Was he fully integrated this week? (laughs) Yeah, probably with selfish masculinity. He was fully integrated. <laughs> All roads led to the same place. <laughs> you know, And it was an awful sight. I had one of those moments yesterday, only it wasn't just a moment. It went on for about half an hour. No, Jesus did not come to give us morality. No matter what generation of morality you have, modern or old, he didn't come to be a teetotaler. I hate to break it to you. And he didn't come to be unity. Jesus came to die. And so people today who try to set up Jesus against the Apostle Paul and say, well, Jesus was merciful and loving and you know, everything that's soft and fuzzy, velveteen rabbity. You know, and then Paul, that nasty Paul, you know, that nasty Paul, he 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 systematized everything. He was like, you know, uh, he was like a duelist, you know. He was a dogmatist. He was a theologian. But Jesus was like a completely integrated person. But Paul, and people have been doing this for generations. They've been setting up Paul over here. He's the nasty. Then there's integrated Jesus, Velveteen Rabbit Jesus, right? And people, this is just not true. There's a book called The Origin of Paul's Religion by Machen, J. Gresham Machen. Read it. But you probably won't because... I failed. I picked it up, thought I'd read it, and I didn't. It's very hard. But in there, Machen points out that one of the ways we know that Jesus is actually who Paul says he is, that there's no conflict between Jesus and Paul, is right here in this text where it says what? It says, if anyone, verse 3, says anything to you, you shall say what? Tell them Jesus wants it. Is that what he says? The Jesus that you can insert whatever content you want? He doesn't say that. He says, tell them what? The Lord. Now, does that sound like somebody who's particularly concerned about how people will view him? What would you do if somebody said to you, the Lord has need of it? What if I came and sent my son Joseph to take your car, and if you asked him why he was taking your car, he were to say to you, the Lord has need of it. There's not one of you that would respond positively to that. And yet what we read is that when they said that to the owner of these things, these animals that were infinitely more precious than cars are to us, make no mistake of the value of livestock at the time. What did they do? They left with the donkey and the the colt. Jesus called himself the Lord. We're not dealing here with a tame man who's fully integrated, and we can just go into flights of fancy talking about how he makes us feel so wholesome. And we just wish that our children could grow up having Jesus as a friend. No. This is Jesus. 
And Jesus is the Lord. And one day every single knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the parts of Scripture I love the most. Just the thought of who's going to be on their knees in front of Jesus. Starting with me, you'll all be relieved, right? And then who else? Who do you want to see on their knees in front of Jesus? Who? Our next door neighbor. That's very interesting. Yep, I agree completely. Who else? Can't hear you. Oh, escorts at the abortuaries, yes. Submitting. Much more the so-called doctors. Who else? Your father. Who else? I want to see Robert Maplethorpe. And see Everett Coop on their knees. Who else? I want to see Miles Brand. Jack Kevorkian. King James? Hmm? Descartes? Hmm? Voltaire. Michael Shivo. Who? The ancients of faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, I'm going to cuddle up to them. I may be able to sneak under them. And so here Jesus is. He pulls back the curtains. He heals the two blind men. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He says, go get the donkey and the colt. Tell them the Lord has need of them. And he gets up on top of them. And then what happens, everybody takes off their outer cloaks. They put them on the colt, because it was actually the colt he rode, not the donkey. Because that's the fulfillment of the prophecy. And he begins to proceed into Jerusalem. And everybody goes berserk. And he has a welcome fitting for a king, right? Yes, right, but really wrong. Because it shouldn't be a donkey, should it? What should it be? It should be a steed of war fitting for a king. It should be a horse. It should be a stallion. Either a white or a black stallion, Arabian. And it isn't. It's a colt. So you look at Jesus and you think everything he does is in obedience to his father and fulfillment of scripture. So why did God inspire the Holy Spirit to predict it would be a colt? Why not a stallion? Well, because everything about Jesus is dissonant against our fleshly desires. Nothing is ever quite what we want. The Roman legions weren't surrounding him as he came in. The Pharisees and scribes, the legitimate religious leaders, were not out there welcoming him. What were they doing? They were out there saying, shut the children up. And there wasn't like, you know, robes of linen. There wasn't, uh, there weren't all the colors and all the fancy cloths, fabric that there should have been. And... You know, it wasn't all the muckety-mucks who were out there. In other words, look at it this way. If you've got John Glenn coming back from the moon, right? Or from space, not the moon. That's Armstrong. 
And you're going to give John Glenn a ticker tape parade. Where do you give him a ticker tape parade? In Bedford, Indiana? No. In Indianapolis? No. It has to be New York City, right? But where in New York? I mean, is it really the Bronx? Or Flushing? No. Where is it? It's Wall Street. So that the kings of the universe are the ones throwing the ticker tape. The masters of the universe, the men that deal with real money, right? Is that who welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem? No, it's not. It's not at all. It's not. Now, here's the real scandal. You got them healing the men born blind, and that feels right. And it's in front of crowds, and that feels right. But the crowds tried to shut up the blind men, and that feels wrong. You've got them raising Lazarus from the dead, which feels right. But he knew Lazarus was sick, and he didn't go back and heal him. And he cries outside of the grave, and there's a lot about that that feels wrong. If he'd really had his act together, as Mary and Martha tell him, he would have been there before Lazarus died. But he does raise him from the dead. That feels right. So then everybody goes out to meet him. And it feels right that all everybody's screaming Hosanna in the highest. It feels right that they're throwing their cloaks on the colt and that he's not riding on the bare skin of the animal, a hide of the animal. It feels right that they're taking the palm fronds and throwing them underneath the animal, right? And it feels right that everybody is yelling out messianic promises and adulation to him, right? But what feels wrong about it? Look at verse 11. Or 12. What feels wrong about it is that the next verse says Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. Can you think of a way to more perfectly and immediately turn off the praise of the people than what Jesus did? You know how you can't stand it when I tell you that you have to make a, discre- a distinction between churches? No, none of you like it. You always get really irritated with that. Well, imagine the distinction Jesus makes. Where Jesus goes into the temple and doesn't just say, you know, beware of the scribes, the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. He's not just saying, beware of the leaven and the scribes and the Pharisees here, is he? What is he saying? What he's saying is he has a whip. And it says he entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. Sometime I'm before I die, I'm going to get a whip. I better not say it because I'll have to do it. Maybe I should just tell you I've always had a fantasy. And if my fantasy comes to truth, like all the people in the bar and uh, what's the Iceman Cometh, is that the name of the play? Where everybody gets their dream? Come on. You've not read that? Isn't it the ice? No, it's not. the. No, it's not. What is it? Barbara, you're failing me. Anyhow, it's, everybody sits in a bar and says what they do if they get money. So somebody gets money, and they all go to pieces because they can't handle what they do if they got money. 
when they really get money. Well, if I ever get courage, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a whip to the International Christian Booksellers Convention. (laughs) And I'm going to tear the place to shreds. It is so wicked. And my father and my father-in-law helped start Christian Booksellers Convention. And it's wicked. Before my dad, my father-in-law died, I told him what I was going to do sometime. And uh, my father-in-law, I asked him if he'd come help me. And I said, it's a nasty, I said, we'll go to jail, not for long, but we will go to jail. But I said, when we get done ripping the place to shreds, everybody will say it was a nasty job, but somebody had to do it. And if you've never been there, talk to how many of you have been there to the, to the Christian Booksellers Convention. Look at, the, look at the hands up. All right. Talk to them. Trust me. It is an absolute, unbelievable trading in the name of God like what went on in the temple at the time of Jesus. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on an exhibit. And it has the substance of plywood and R15 Dow Corning insulation. You know, you could go through that and have the place in in shambles in 15 minutes, the entire exhibit hall. And it's a $4 billion a year industry now, and I think $3 billion of it is not print-related items. In other words, it's all the kish. It's, you know, the sayings on the wall and the rabbit's foots that have a verse on it and you know, the praying hands and, you know, all this, all this. If you were at my home, I'd use the word that needs to be used with it. It's awful. And Jesus goes in the temple and you say, well, it's one thing for Jesus to do it in the temple. It's another thing for us to do it today. I say to you, do you have zeal for the house of God? Do you have zeal for the house of God? When Jesus goes in that temple and cleans out the money changers, does your heart go, yes? After all, don't you realize that for God's house to be a place of prayer, it can't be a place for money changers that are to be safe. It can't be that. You can't have it be a house of prayer while you have all the coins ringing and all the animals bleeding and all the, all the, all the egotistical posturing of, of merchandising. You know, you go into a mall and you think, is that a place where you can worship? You've got the lust and you've got the materialism, you've got the envy, you've got the jealousy and you have the smells and everything about. America today. And that's what was in that temple. And Jesus went in and did what? He cleaned it out. He took a whip and he cleaned it out. And then it was explained. And what is the explanation? It is written, verse 13, He said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now let me ask you, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In verse 9 it says, The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Who is Jesus? What's the answer? The crowds were saying, this is what? 
Huh? Come on. What? This is what? The prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know that the three offices of Christ are what? Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Now, everybody loves him to be a priest, right? Everybody loves to be saved by Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How many people love him to be our king? Man, when he becomes king, you have a lot of tough issues to deal with, don't you? The lordship of Jesus Christ is not an easy thing. The lordship over your money. The lordship over your marriage, who you date. The lordship over when you are intimate with a man. The lordship over being intimate with your husband. The lordship of your womb. The lordship of your brain. The lordship over your sexuality. And now I'm not talking about intimacy. I'm talking about your nature as a man and a woman. What does it mean for Christ to be your Lord? The lordship over the building of the church. The lordship over a nation and over its military. The lordship over atom bombs. Nobody ever wants to think about the lordship of Jesus Christ over weapons that make no distinction between civilians and combatants. The lordship of Jesus Christ over his people. The lordship of Jesus Christ through his word over your entire life. The lordship of Jesus Christ in this book. It's difficult. But you know, you may be willing to have him as your Lord as well as your Savior. Zane Hodges doesn't think it's necessary. He's a heretic. But how many of you love him as prophet? You take him as priest, you may take him as king, but how many of us love him as our prophet? I mean, really. It's interesting that there's a debate over whether or not Jesus cleansed the temple once or twice because there are two separate accounts and they think, well, one of them obviously isn't during the Passover week and one of them is. But he couldn't possibly have done it twice. (laughs) Come on, laugh. (laughs) Jesus couldn't possibly have cleansed the temple twice. I think he did. As a matter of fact, I know he did because Scripture tells us he did. It doesn't say the word twice, but it gives us two separate occasions. And uh, Jesus is our prophet. And you know something? If you, if you don't love and embrace Jesus as your prophet, you don't know him. You really don't know him. He wasn't fully integrated when he went and got the colt, and the colt was integrated with its maker. And so the colt, like, let him ride her because, after all, he'd never been ridden before. Right? Never. But, you know, there was something about Jesus. He was the creator, and so nature was, like, integrated with Jesus, right? You know? 
They talk about this in commentaries. You know, you kind of make your peace with the Jesus who's approaching Jerusalem and receiving the adulation and praises and messianic proclamations. Who raised Lazarus from the dead, who healed the blind men. You can make your peace with him. But what do you do with him when he goes in the temple? What do you do with him? What do you do with him? Do you think that has any application to religion in America today? Do you think it has any application to the commerce of Wheaton, Illinois? Do you think it has any application to Trinity Broadcasting Network? You know, we always like to say, well, that's Jesus, but you're not Jesus, so shut up. You remember what Jesus said. He said, you know, the prophets have always been killed. He says, we go out and lay garlands on the tombs of the ones that are dead and then stone the living ones on our way home from the cemetery. The only way to know whether or not you accept the prophetic witness of Jesus Christ is to look at how you respond to the Word of God when it speaks against the grain today and when its preachers and its teachers and when your wife speaks against its grain today. Right? So can I plead with you to love the prophet Jesus? Can I plead with you to love him? And not to love him by looking at him and setting him in a museum and putting thick bulletproof glass between him and you and your life. And you go in and bow your knee every morning. I love the prophet Jesus. But to love him smack in your face, an elder speaking to you, me preaching to you, uh, your wife rebuking you. Love Jesus Christ, the prophet, the one who cleansed the temple. And then have the same zeal he has for the house of God. Do a little cleaning yourself.